The first time I had that jarring moment of seeing just how some patients that are women are treated in the hospital compared to patients that are men was in medical school. We were rounding on our list of patients, and I began presenting a patient, a 32-year-old woman, to the attending that had just taken over that service. I started to mention that she had pain, and he interrupted me and said, Is she, like, normal or crazy? I remember just looking at him, confused. I said, Normal, I think. And this happened periodically throughout my training. Women, when complaining of pain, more often than men, received a psychiatric diagnosis. When men complained, they got more tests, more investigation to find out what was wrong. We have both worked in different hospitals and even in different parts of the country, and our experiences were the same. Why was this happening? Why weren't we believing these women? And why was their pain going untreated? We're going to explore more on today's episode. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome to Season 1 of The Hurt. I'm Dr. Mira Kirpaker. And I'm Dr. Alopi Patel. And we are both double board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. As anesthesiologists and pain physicians, we have a wide breadth of knowledge of perioperative medicine, which is medicine as it pertains to before, during, and after surgery, as well as pain syndromes and treatments. And before we get deeper into discussing chronic pain in women, let's just briefly talk about what exactly anesthesiologists and pain physicians do. An anesthesiologist is a physician, either an MD or a DO. So for us, after high school and an undergraduate college degree, Alopi and I have done four years of medical school, followed by four years of residency in anesthesiology. After residency, we have both done an additional one-year fellowship in interventional pain management, and we've taken a total of eight national board exams to complete our medical training. As board-certified anesthesiologists, we are trained in the complete care of a patient in the perioperative period. So we complete a full history and physical when we meet the patient to appropriately create a plan for anesthetizing the patient for their respective surgery. This can mean we are doing sedation, nerve blocks, or general anesthesia with the breathing tube. Our four years of training required various rotations in the field of anesthesiology, including ICU, OB anesthesia for moms giving birth, transplant anesthesia, cardiac anesthesia for heart and lung surgery, and more. This rigorous training required thousands of hours and many, many overnight calls to be prepared for any and every emergency. I definitely don't miss those crazy overnight calls as a resident. But they did prepare me well for those split-second decisions that we do have to make as an anesthesiologist. You know, and we're also boarded in pain medicine, which is a subspecialty of anesthesiology and a few other fields. So we're trained to think about the patient, to put it simply, in the form of muscles, bones, and nerves. What is causing the patient's pain, and how can we treat it appropriately? As interventionalists, we are trained in various different injections using either ultrasound or a fluoroscope, which is like an x-ray, and these procedures include epidurals, 
joint injections such as knee, shoulder, and hip injections, as well as injections for headaches, muscle pain, and pelvic pain. We also will refer to other healthcare professionals as appropriate for patients to get comprehensive care for their pain diagnosis. So whether that's for physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, massage therapy, acupuncture, or other medical subspecialties. And we'll be discussing many of these topics in our future podcasts. Mira, I know you and I both love what we do. And what we've seen in medicine, particularly in how it affects women, is really what drove us to create this platform. We want our content to be a source of comfort for women and men who seek more knowledge about their pain, as well as other topics in the field of anesthesiology. We are so passionate about it, and it's really how we first became friends. Yep, about four years ago. So we first met at an anesthesiology conference as residents and then realized we were going to be doing our pain fellowship training together at the same institution. So at the conference, we really hit it off about being women in a male-dominated specialty of pain medicine. Yes, actually, only 18% of pain physicians are women. So Mira and I really bonded during our fellowship year, not just about being minorities in the field of pain medicine, but also about women's health and our passion for treating women patients. We recognize that often the women population, especially the ones that have pelvic pain, have a difficult time being plugged into the right professionals for accurate diagnosis, treatment, and management of this challenging issue. There are a minority of pain physicians that are actually addressing pelvic pain. The more we discussed our stories of patients not knowing where to turn to for treatment of their pain, whether it's from pelvic pain or migraines or other nonspecific abdominal pain, the more we realized there was a common denominator which is that these are often women patients whose diagnoses and management have been too challenging and have been written off as too complicated or even crazy because oftentimes physicians don't know how to address women-centric pain. We wanted to create this podcast as a way to contribute to the public discourse on women's health and specifically pain, its diagnoses, and treatments. We want to emphasize an evidence-based approach on diseases and treatments as they affect women, we will also be discussing diagnoses that may be considered taboo or uncomfortable due to cultural norms, because we want to empower both women and men to engage in their health and well-being. We also want to use our background in anesthesiology to discuss pain as it affects women in other various settings as well, so things like pregnancy and postpartum. And as a working mom, I also want this forum to discuss issues that women may face in the work setting, such as pumping, maternity leave, or even discrimination. Overall, we want this to be a platform for women to turn to, not just for women's pain and pelvic pain, but as a women's health initiative to empower women to take charge of their own health care and to speak up. So let's get back to the way women are treated in hospital settings. Did you know that women wait an average of 16 minutes longer to receive pain medication in the ER as compared to men? Or that women are 13 to 25% less likely to receive opioids for their abdominal pain than men? So why is that? Why are we hesitating to take these women seriously? Let's jump a little into the history of women's pain. Just another woman being hysterical. Mira, how many times have we heard that? You know, I think we think of it as a joke now, something that we see in like shows and media and just laugh about. But let's talk about that word hysteria, because it's the entire basis of women's pain. Hysteria now, as we understand it, means a state of emotional excess. However, up until the 19th century, hysteria was a diagnosed physical and mental illness, diagnosed only in women, 
In fact, the word hysteria comes from the Greek word for uterus. Technically, it means wandering uterus, whatever that means. Let's talk about the emotional excess that you mentioned. So from what I've read, documentation starting from 1900 BC by the Egyptians noted symptoms like irritability, insomnia, fatigue, mood swings. Do these symptoms sound familiar? Maybe just normal hormonal processes of menstruation and menopause? And if they really are in excess, that might actually be underlying signs of anxiety or depression, something that has nothing to do with gender. So then the ancient Greeks actually treated hysteria by administering herbs and other substances orally or even vaginally to bring that wandering uterus back to its natural position. They even used hysteria as a diagnosis for some women's inability to have children or even to marry, which is why treatment included marriage as a way to prescribe regular sex for women because they thought maybe semen might have healing properties. The ancient Romans actually attributed hysteria to an abnormality of the uterus, so the disease of hysteria was caused by a disruption of reproduction, whether that's miscarriage or menopause. So when you think about it, the most disease-free a woman could be was during pregnancy. And then as time went on with increasing influence from Western religions, medical and public understanding of hysteria changed to suggest that hysteria was a form of human suffering resulting from sin. So the treatments then changed to amulets, prayers, and exorcisms. It went so far even that many women in the medieval and renaissance periods were prosecuted as witches and underwent torture and execution. As time progressed, the perception of hysteria returned to a more medical disorder in the 16th century, because now it was believed that hysteria was a disease starting in the brain, and possibly an emotional and psychological condition, a result of the weakness of women. And again, the actual definition and treatment of hysteria changed over time. But it wasn't until Sigmund Freud that it was suggested that hysteria can also be applied to men. Finally, and that brings us to modern medicine. As the field of psychiatry evolved in Western medicine, hysteria diagnoses were replaced with anxiety and depression diagnoses. With further globalization after World War II and westernization of medicine, there was kind of a shift in mental health expectations because anxiety and depression were expected in post-World War II generations, leading to a huge increase in these diagnoses rather than just calling it hysteria. And as more medical advancements were made, issues that were previously attributed to hysteria, you know, so things like epilepsy and infertility, were also increasingly replacing the diagnosis of hysteria. And finally, in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association's DSM the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, used as the main authority for psychiatric diagnoses, removed the diagnosis of hysteria as a mental disorder. So in this long history, that word has only recently been removed from our medical vocabulary, just for about 40 years. Advancements in medicine have now led us to understand that the uterus is not the cause of most medical problems in women, and that the symptoms that were previously attributed to the uterus were probably just normal behaviors that were considered unacceptable to society to be coming from women. And while that's great that we've made significant progress in understanding women's pain, how much progress have we really made? Over 80% of pain studies have been done on male subjects, male humans and male rats. And in fact, until 2016, the sex of research subjects was completely ignored. Why? It was just too difficult to factor in hormonal changes females go through with menstruation, pregnancy, and menopause. 
It was simply easier to just leave them out. Right. And it wasn't actually until 2016 that the U.S. National Institute for Health, the NIH, first made it a requirement for grant applicants to justify their choice of the sex of the animals used in research. And this has led to one big discovery, that males and females process pain differently. Let's break it down a little into what those differences actually are. And this might get a little technical, but I think it's important to understand for its implications. So Mira, do you want to start? Absolutely. So when it comes down to pain signals in the brain and spinal cord, there are differences between males and females, and there are three main theories of why this is the case. So one, estrogen. So estrogen is a hormone that controls the development of the uterus, ovaries, and breasts, and also regulates menstruation. So depending on where that estrogen is located and how much estrogen there is, it can either worsen pain or make it better. And testosterone, which is a hormone involved in the development of the penis, testes, and prostate, can dull pain. And in fact, some people with chronic pain may even take testosterone treatments to help with that pain. So women can have worsened pain because of their high estrogen levels. And what about men with low testosterone? Well, they process pain similarly to women. The second difference lies in the immune system, the immune cells that are actually involved in the pain pathways. So these immune cells are called microglia. What microglia are are essentially the immune cells of the brain. And the theory was that if you block the microglia, then it should block the pain. And in men, when microglia were blocked, the pain was blocked too. But this didn't quite work in women. So the theory is that women may use immune cells called T-cells instead of microglia to control the pain response. So women who don't have as many T-cells, well, they switch to the way that men process pain. And the last theory is RNA, or ribonucleic acid. RNA is the genetic material that carries messages in our body. Women have elevated levels of RNA in their bloodstream compared to men. So it's theorized that these elevated levels lead to a predisposition to the development of chronic pain. And many of these RNA molecules are encoded by genes on the X chromosome. And in women, there are two copies, and so an even higher predisposition to developing chronic pain. So what we're saying is, women not only process pain signals differently, they also have reason to develop more chronic pain. But don't most current medications target male-based pain signaling, Mira? Yes. So we discovered a long time ago that children aren't little adults in how their bodies work. So why would men and women be the same? This leads us to question so many former truths. So now when we think about it, and we say that a higher percentage of women suffer from chronic pain than men, now is this because women need higher amounts of pain medication? Or really, is it because the conventional pain treatments that were developed on research done on male subjects just don't work for women? You know, I think this is the start of a new era where we as a society are finally paying attention to women's pain. And Dr. P and I hope to play a role in furthering this really important topic. We're so excited to discuss these topics with you. And in our future podcast, we will be discussing a lot more information, including pain during pregnancy, labor epidurals, mental health, pelvic pain, and so much more. Click to subscribe and be notified for our future podcasts. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail 
if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.